Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And we're doing a little Peach Pod after dark tonight. And to join me for a late night podcast, I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? I am so glad that we are done with the 20 people debates. Yes, we are, which is why we're uh, talking late tonight. But before we get to our topics, we are also joined by Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Um, tired? Yes. Tired. <laughs> tired. <laughs> That's it. It's past All my right. bedtime. Buckle up, folks. We're, we're doing this probably later than we should. So on this week's <laughs> show, we are getting together late after the second Democratic debate. So you're going to hear us. Because we love you. Yes, because we love you. You're going to hear us recap the festivities for the first part of our show. And then after that, I've got an interview to share with y'all. About two weeks ago now, I talked with Marcus Cole. He's a Democrat running in the 7th Congressional District. He's in that race with folks like Carolyn Bordeaux, Brenda Lopez-Romero, and Nabila Islam, people that we've talked to before on the podcast. Uh, Marcus is also in that race, so we're going to learn a little bit about his campaign. And that'll be the show for the week. But let's go ahead and dive in on recapping this debate. So on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, Democrats gathered for their second debate of the Democratic primary. The candidates were split across two nights again, with the first night becoming an ideological battle between the progressives and the moderates, and the second one being a more wide-open affair with everybody training their aim at Joe Biden. Let's talk through these two nights and the policies the candidates raised, the policies the candidates attacked, and where the party is going to go from here as it tries to pick its nominee. But before we get into all these details, let's Let's just start with your initial takeaways uh, just after finishing watching the second night of this debate. Uh, Megan, what stood out to you uh, watching these two nights? Insert usual comment here about not following the rules of the debate. (laughs) Um, That said, since I've said that every time we've talked about a debate, um, I did think that the past two nights have been way more constructive from the debates that we've seen. Um, Well, obviously, the previous one was the first one, but, you know, just in other debates past, um, we did get down to some good policy issues. We also, I actually appreciated how straightforward some of the candidates were in calling each other out. Um, I don't really appreciate passive aggression. And I'd rather on a stage like this for candidates just to say what they mean. And I did actually really appreciate when they were like, well, actually, you said this um, and just laid it out there. So that was kind of fun. I would build off what Megan just said and uh, say I I appreciated both of these debates because I think uh, while testy at times and, you know, involving uh, big personalities, it was actually pretty substantive. And I think there's a lot of like really interesting debates going on in the Democratic Party uh, that we've been kind of working out ever since uh, it became clear Obama would not be our standard bearer anymore. And, you know, compared to the Republican Party debates in 2016, you know, like we have a field that's really, really big. Um, But I kind of feel like that was, you know, still the Trump show, as many things are. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity for them to... Uh, you know, discuss like what their party should do and be like going forward is a lot, you know, he hijacked the whole process. And I think also the Republican Party just doesn't have nearly as many differences. Whereas the Democratic Party, like, everyone wants to take the country forward and, you know, take the presidency in a different direction. But there's a lot of options for what that looks like. And I think this process, while imperfect, uh, is doing a pretty good decent job so far of kind of laying out what those options are and i'm you know looking forward to there being less people definitely but i think um having these two debates four debates total i guess you could say has been really useful in my mind just because it's shown the diversity and the strength of the democratic party and the way that i felt about it is you know having these really really big debates if nothing else is proving that if a uh you know, Democrat wins in 2020, uh, they're going to have plenty of cabinet choices (laughs) and plenty of people to pick from because there's a lot of strong candidates uh, running. Yeah, there was a whole administration on the stage pretty much yesterday and today. I think 20 candidates is just way too many in terms of trying to sum up where the party is right now um, and, and sort of the different wings or the different groupings within the party. Um, it's just a lot 
to absorb it, particularly if you're somebody who doesn't sort of follow this for a living the way that we do. Um, I, I'm but wondering. I think that's why the party has made such a good choice in winnowing it significantly after this. Yeah. And you know we're you know we're not going to have twenty people. I mean, I'll be surprised if we have ten or eleven uh, going forward. And I think it's just going to winnow further and further, either because the party mandates it or just people reality testing that they're not actually going to be president. That's true. Well, and but I do want to call out. I appreciate the positivity. Of saying, you know, we've actually got a bunch of really great candidates on the stage because as Democrats, we're known to eat our own. And while at some point we are going to have to make a decision, it is really positive to hear people say, you know, Luke, specifically, you just said, hey, we've got a great cabinet built in. And so, like, that's a great way to look at it. So let's start breaking these down night by night here. And and let's start with the first night. The first night, I think, was really defined primarily by who the participants were in the first night. The highest profile candidates that you had on night one were Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And then they uh, really were lined up pretty deliberately by CNN's questioning against several lower tier moderates, people like John Hickenlooper, John Delaney, um, Steve Bullock. To some extent, Buttigieg. To some extent, Buttigieg. I think Buttigieg sort of falls in this sort of weird middle ground, and, and we can get to that. But really, the way that CNN sort of set up the conflict central to the evening in the first night was Warren and Sanders, the progressive wing, battling it out with these uh, lower tier moderates. Um, what did y'all make of that? sort of narrative that CNN really worked in through the questions. Do you think that it like illustrated anything to you about the emergence of the progressive wing in the party or, or what were your reactions to that sort of setup? I, I would say it isn't, you know, like CNN facilitated that narrative. They didn't really create it. I mean, I see that on the ground. I see it, you know, in the different, you know, blogs I read and just, I, it's a real narrative that the progressives and the you know more establishment Democrats are having a argument, and I think uh, CNN did a pretty good job of facilitating that argument and giving Warren and Sanders an opportunity to you know talk about their plans, and you know uh, as as they both kind of mentioned, uh, CNN kind of framed it from a more Republican point of view. But you know, like that's what Donald Trump's going to do. That's what a lot of other people are going to do. So you know, get we might as well get the notion out of our heads that uh, it's going to be easy to do something like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. Uh, so I think that was a very useful framing because that is the conversation that's happening. And rather than uh, treating everyone as if they're giving you know speeches next to each other, uh, I think CNN did a pretty good job of like encouraging conversation between the candidates and encouraging that debate because um, I, I kind of think we're gonna have you know however this primary ends we're going to go with someone who's a like more moderate or more progressive like that's that's the middle ground folks i'm not as sure on but i think that's the real choice is between you know real transformative change for the country or is donald trump aberration and we're just trying to like excise him from office i that's the framing i see this race and the question primary voters have to answer yep and just to build off of what luke said this is something that like CNN did indeed facilitate a conversation that is going on in day to day with me as a chair of a caucus or um, with me just talking with my colleagues about politics. A lot of people no longer identify with the Democratic Party because of the shift that's going on internally right now where it's essentially splitting into I don't want to call it two parties or two factions because it's not that extreme, but just for the sake of brevity two parties. We need to call it out. We need to talk about it. And CNN actually set us up perfectly for that. Now, was it pleasant? Not particularly, not at times, no. But we need to lay out what the two options are. And I think, Luke, you ac- you absolutely hit the nail on the head. We're going to go with a candidate that either is a more moderate option that we think can flip moderates and grab some Republican voters or we're going to go with somebody that is the extreme opposite. Yeah, the thing that I thought was really interesting about having it set up that way is I was almost a little surprised that 
the dominant side of that debate, in my view, was the progressives. It was Warren and Sanders and the side that felt sort of pushed back on their heels that had a hard time making a concrete persuasive argument was this group of second or third tier centrists that they were doing battle with. I think Warren got the line of the night in on the first night when she basically questioned why John Delaney was running. Senator Warren. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. Delaney just sort of smirked when she had that line. It, it was a good line, but it it was so different from the structure of the primary in 2016, where Hillary Clinton, the progressive but more establishment, a little more centrist candidate, she felt like the one who had the more dominant argument. And Sanders was coming in a little more from the fringes and trying to get his ideas to get a fair shake to get them uh, paid attention to not only by moderators in the media, but by the Democratic electorate who took a while to warm up to him in that primary. That dynamic is totally flipped. And I, I'm stealing a line that Luke had in our pre-show discussion, but it, it definitely feels like Sanders in some ways won that 2016 primary. And I think you saw that really illustrated out of that dynamic in the first night of this week's debate. Yeah. And just, you know, to, to build upon my thought that you mentioned, I, I think the reason why we are here is like, think about like going into the 2016 primary as a Democratic voter. Like we've had eight years of Obama, didn't go as great as we wanted it to, but we're pretty happy with it. And Clinton seems like a very clear continuation of that. We're going to make incremental progress. Things are going to continue to get better. Sure, we'd like it to get better quicker, but things are going to keep getting better. And obviously, the election of Donald Trump just completely shatters that. So I think I will point out my bias by saying I am firmly in this camp. After Trump won, like incrementalism seems like not the solution for the problem of the moment. Uh, I'm increment incrementalist on a lot of things and just, you know, that's my disposition. But like right now, I kind of think we need to like really reset the table and i think that is why the progressives are doing so much better because like your delaney's your hicking loopers you're even someone who i respect really heavily like michael bennett they are people who i think would have been excellent presidents in a different moment you know like they would have been great in like 1992 <laughs> or 1980 but like for this particular moment where we're facing you know the uh economic inequality that we're facing, the healthcare problems that we're facing, and even like foreign problems that we're facing. We need someone who's like willing to like put out the Green New Deal, put out Medicare for all. And even if they can't get it, the fact that they're thinking on that big of a scale, I think, means the solution that they'll come to, you know, once they have to push everything through Congress will be still significant change and reform. And I think in 2016, that didn't feel as necessary as it does now, but now it feels like it's not only uh, necessary, it is imminently important that we, we do that. And I think that's why the more establishment folks are just falling flat, because they're just not offering anything that feels like it meets the moment that we're in. Do we think that this dynamic would have been different had the two progressives, Sander and War Sanders and Warren, been going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most prominent centrist in this race, Joe Biden. You know, somebody like John Delaney, who actually was like, I thought held his own while sort of putting out maybe less popular positions, but he's somebody who definitely has less star power. He's less recognized than somebody like Biden would be uh, going up against these two. Do you think that that dynamic would have been different had Biden been on the first night? And does that tell us anything about the third debate later this year where Biden is going to be sharing a stage with Sanders and Warren? So I think it actually would have been a lot more like a second night. I think we would have seen a lot more interchanges like we saw between Biden and Harris tonight. I think that would have been more prevalent on the first night. And I think that that's going to continue to be very prevalent. Um, I think that the way the draw happened, um, it actually made for kind of a I don't want to go as far as to say boring because it was far from boring, but um, the fireworks were certainly not of the same caliber between the first night and the second night. I think the first night was very much so 
the Bernie Sanders show with a whole lot of Warren thrown in. Whereas tonight we got a lot more of a like mixed viewpoint and of people really challenging what the others said. Not to say that that didn't happen on the first night. Again, it certainly did. But it happened in a different way. And I think what we're going to see going forward is much more like what happened tonight, the second night. Yeah, I I, I kind of haven't been able to, you know, it's late. <laughs> it just happened. And I, so I haven't been able to completely wrap my head around it. But my instinct is that the the first night was a lot more satisfying for me as a debate uh, because it was on these ideological grounds where, like, people had real disagreements. It was not like, you said this 20 years ago, but now you believe the same thing I do. Explain, respond to that. (laughs) You know, like, tonight just felt so much like, well, Joe Biden, 30 years ago, you said X, or Kamala Harris, 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, you did this. And it's just like, I have no interest in that kind of stuff. You know, like, it's one thing if someone has, like, said my position is X and done Y, all throughout their career and they're still saying X. And so like, yeah, they're probably going to do Y, but like in this situation, like Biden has evolved. He's had an incredibly long career. I'm sure Kamala Harris has evolved too from her time of being AG where she had different incentives and different responsibilities and different problems. I'm sure she has a different perspective now that she's been a senator. And like that kind of thing is so much less interesting to me than the like very interesting intellectual ideological debate that happened on the first night and i just i just worry like the second night felt more trumpish to me than the the first night and it felt far more like i'm gonna try to get this sick burn on this person and like you know dig up this position that they held 20 years ago that makes them look bad now and i'm just i'm hoping that's not what the rest of the debates are gonna be um and i really wonder what the like Biden Warren Bernie dynamic will be. And I wonder if it's going to be more like the Harris Biden fights where it's like kind of personal rather than ideological, or if Warren and Bernie will kind of stick on their ideological arguments. And uh, if Biden will engage them on that front, because I kind of, I feel like Biden might have an opportunity to do a lot better on that front, but we haven't seen him do that yet. And that kind of seems like to be what his main argument is that he wants to be making, which is like, you know, I am Joe Biden. I will keep things pretty much as they have been. America will be boring again, (laughs) you know, elect me. And, you know, we shouldn't take the risk of Bernie and Warren. Like that seems to be the argument he wants to make, but we haven't actually seen him get to make it. So I'm kind of curious how that will work out. Yeah, the closest he's come to making it is continually evoking Obama. And he said something to the effect tonight of like, Obama said he made a great decision when he picked me. And so like, that's the thing that he's... (laughs) Are you saying Barack Obama made the wrong decision? Right? Um, So like, that's pretty much as close as he's gotten to making that point. So I I hope I'm wrong, Luke. I I hope that it does not end up being what we saw between Biden and Harris, but that is my fear. Therefore that is what I'm going in to expect. And maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Mr. Hayes, your response. (laughs) I'm going to do a Kirsten Gillibrand. And for a a few moments there tonight, she just like, wasn't there when they were ready to go to Um, her. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, She seemed genuinely surprised that they asked her questions. (laughs) It, It was, I was a little disappointed. I wanted her to be like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to go. But also with the way that stage was going, I can kind of relate and understand because I've certainly had those moments on this podcast and there are only a handful of us. Um, But yeah, that didn't look, that was not a good look for her. And I know I said I wanted to like stay out of the individual people, but like I have to just like pause for a moment. I do not understand why Kirsten Gillibrand has had such a hard time running for president because I feel like she is tailor made for this moment in the sense that, you know, she represented upstate New York, but now she represents all of New York and she kind of like understands, you know, those two very different constituencies. And I mean, she's had a pretty successful Senate career and, you know, she's someone who like, comes up a lot and doesn't seem like she's able to find her i don't know point for running it's weird maybe it's just because the field is so huge i don't know if she's if she stays in it maybe we'll maybe we'll get to see the real the real her 
yeah, I think to some extent she doesn't have her niche in this race. She's not really central to the ideological divide between moderates and progressives. She's actually lived like in both sides of that between her early career representing upstate New York, being a relatively conservative Democrat. And then later in her career coming up to now, um, a lot of her most prominent policy stances like go right at the sharpest feelings of identity politics in democratic politics right now. Um, But she doesn't like, she isn't like a symbol of that division. She doesn't have like a niche issue like Medicare for all the way that Sanders and Warren do. Um, I just think that to some extent, like narratively, she doesn't get looped in very well. And I think, you know, maybe one thing to, to, to speak to her sort of not being ready to, to jump on questions when she had the chances, the way that it went in some of the exchanges between people like Biden and Harris or uh, sometimes Biden and de Blasio or Biden and Booker, the moderators would just let them go on for like three, four minutes at a time. They'd get rebuttal after rebuttal at each other. And then they would go all of a sudden and they'd say, okay, Kirsten Gillibrand, you respond to that thing that they were just talking about for four minutes that has nothing to do with a question we've asked you already. Like, I think that that was kind of a tough dynamic for her. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of the issues and and how this kind of shook out across the two nights. Healthcare got prime billing both nights, and I'm sort of coming away with it feeling a little bit confused and that there wasn't, we didn't learn a lot about healthcare, I don't think, in the way that you could have given the divides. I mean, particularly in the second night, but um, I would I would disagree. What how, how do you feel like we didn't learn that much? Well, I think you learned. I don't know. I think it. You definitely saw on the first night. You saw like the progressives stand up for Medicare for all as expected. The centrists knock it down as expected. The one piece that I thought was interesting that I think may not really get picked up on, but could maybe be meaningful if it does get picked up on, is when. Democrats have had this discussion about do we do single payer health care or do we do something that's within the current system? The sort of way conflict averse people cut through that is to say, well, you know, the one thing that we can all agree on as Democrats is we all support universal health care. Kamala Harris went directly after Joe Biden tonight, saying that Biden's plan does not guarantee universal health care coverage. And I follow some healthcare wonks on Twitter who who kind of backed that up. Do we think, what did you think about healthcare generally? But on this point about universal coverage, is that like a significant weakness for Biden if he doesn't sort of beef up his healthcare plan to be something closer to everybody else's different flavors of Medicare for all? So I think the biggest flaw is that everyone is wanting Medicare for all, right? The for all part is super crucial. And so Biden is legitimately leaving out like the math supports the fact that he is leaving out millions of Americans with his plan. And if the for all part is the part that everyone really truly cares about, then yeah, Biden's got a problem. Yeah, my my feeling on this one is that I think the new like democratic baseline is a robust public option. I think most Democrats, like even Michael Bennett, who is someone who is like trying to be the establishment, like I am in the middle. Like he's like, yeah, hell yeah, public option. We should have public option in 08. So like, or 09, but you know what I mean. Uh, So yeah, like I feel like that's the baseline. And so to the extent that um, Biden's plan isn't as robust as like, Medicare for America, which is, you know, what some of the more uh, moderate leaning Democrats are uh, supporting. I think that is a big problem for him. And it's just kind of surprising that he hasn't jumped on that, you know, policy or done something really similar to that. Yeah, this was one instance where he really does try to hide behind Obama. You know, he invoked Obamacare in the way that most people have started calling it the Affordable Care Act to try to not have it totally tied to his legacy. I think um, this is one way, and and he got criticized from Booker on this, this is one way in which he's continued to use Obama as a crutch, even though he he says he doesn't use Obama as a crutch. Even though even centrist troll John Delaney 
has a healthcare plan that has a big expansion of public healthcare coverage. So this is like another point for Bernie Sanders having won the argument in 2016, even though he lost the primary, is like the centrist guy is running on a more progressive healthcare platform in 2019, 2020 than Hillary Clinton was running on in 2016, which kind of just blows my mind. The other uh, really big issue, really big on the second night, was the issue of criminal justice reform. And this was something that was previewed really in the lead up to the debate because of uh, Biden getting Kamala Harris on one side and Cory Booker on the other side. And in the press, they were all sniping at each other about everyone else's criminal justice reform records uh, going back to the 1990s, going back to Booker's time as Newark mayor, um, to just fill you in on a little bit of that context if you're not familiar with that um so so booker spent the lead up to the debate attacking joe biden for the policies in the 1994 crime bill these are things like mandatory minimums uh things that uh policies that were really punitive on african americans particularly uh people who were using drugs this whole collection of policies that is said to really be the the precursor and the enabler of mass incarceration in this country uh, Joe Biden, both before the debate and during the debate, fought back with Booker by saying that Booker, while he was mayor, oversaw a police department in Newark, New Jersey, uh, that was under investigation by the Justice Department, by the Obama-Biden Justice Department, and that that investigation found that uh, this stop-and-frisk policy that was a policy of the police department had resulted in pedestrian stops that didn't have a sufficient legal basis and that black individuals were at least two and a half times as likely as white individuals to be stopped. Um, and that Cory Booker initially objected to an investigation of his own police department. Uh, Kamala Harris, she didn't actually get in the fire with uh, Booker and Biden as much, but she got a lot of pushback on her own record on criminal justice from Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard basically brought to the debate the criticisms from leftists who the shorthand is Kamala is a cop, but it, it criticizes her record as attorney general in California. Well, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place. That impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. So the second night for a long chunk in the middle was a rehashing of all of these records. 1994, Booker's time as mayor, Harris's time as attorney general. Coming out of all that and, and all that detail that I just kind of threw out there, are there any takeaways from y'all besides the mudslinging at each other on all of these issues? Like, I don't... I didn't get much just in terms of like, okay, who's the best person on criminal justice reform on that stage then? No, I have a lot more questions that I'm going to need answered. I'm not entirely sure what those questions are just yet, if I'm being quite honest, but I just need more information. Yeah, I, I the mudslinging, like I said earlier, it's just... I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like the this is like too early to start digging into like the... Well, you did this in nineteen four, you know, ninety two. Like I don't know. I, I I feel I feel like we should like have a couple more of the like my broad vision for the country, and you should argue with me on those terms, and then you know get more into the records as we go on. I I think that's a effect of like there being so many people, and it was just kind of hard to keep up with all of these attacks. But I mean, to be fair, on this section, it was really uh, Booker, Biden, and Harris fighting out. But still. I don't know. I I feel like we haven't fleshed out how because like I don't see like on healthcare there's some clear differences about what they want, but I don't feel like those three candidates have established what their clear differences and their vision for the country are yet, and so it makes it harder for me to see the necessity of this like political dirt throwing at this point right like i need a side-by-side -side, like features matrix essentially 
like offering this yes no in these circumstances and then with that context okay well so and so is like really messing up here because they're not offering that like it would just make things make a lot more sense if if life were were oh so simple well the interesting thing is these candidates now are basically all moving in the same direction on what they would do in the future on criminal justice reform. And then they throw each other's records back and forth to try to basically call bullshit on each other saying, you don't actually believe this because of what you did in 94 or 2007 or whatever. But they are all recognizing the problem of mass incarceration. They want a criminal justice system focused on rehabilitation and not incarceration. Um, Biden laid out ideas that largely reversed some policies from the 1994 crime bill and other punitive drug measures from the 80s. He wants to completely eliminate the disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, um, a disparity put into drug law that basically made drug law more punitive on African-Americans based on the type of drug prevalent in African-American communities. They're all moving in the same direction to be more progressive. And we haven't gotten into enough detail to see is somebody going a lot further than the others. You know, I think the one place where they've gone you know, maybe 30 yards and and somebody else has gone even further is Julian Castro. He's put out, he's the only candidate right now to put out a specific platform on policing and reforming police practices. This is stuff like dealing with use of force guidelines um, that enable things like police shootings and police violence. Um, This is also bringing in uh, community members to do oversight of police departments to to sort of serve as a check on police abuses. I think Castro sort of leads the field in having the most well-thought ideas on that. But I think this is another instance where they're going to throw a lot of mud at each other. But then at the end of the day, whoever the nominee is, is probably going to gather up the best ideas from all these different campaigns and platforms. And Julian Castro maybe ends up as like DHS secretary doing local police department oversight. Like, you know, I, I don't know that we learned that much either, um, except to say that they know strategically that this is a place where, they're going to fight with each other because they view criminal justice issues as important to African-Americans who are vital to winning the primary vote. I think really how to sum up how the night went for Biden and how I don't like this mudslinging is like Biden really summed up this night by saying, quote, everybody is talking about how terrible I am on these issues, (laughs) end quote. Like, I mean, that's that's just like really all we accomplished tonight is, you know, we... And I think it's obvious, like, Biden's the former vice president, he's the front runner, and so it's kind of like, if you're if you're gonna win, <laughs> you have to knock him off. But I just feel like there's a way to do it that doesn't feel so personal and nasty, because to me, like, the far more important conversation is, like, the vision for the country, and I would argue that Booker and Harris have a very different ideological vision for the country, and Bernie and uh, Warren definitely do than Biden. I, I, I hope that going forward there's a lot more focus on that because uh, i don't want to you know, be naive like there definitely needs to be some conversation of record uh I, I think that's important too but i think we need to not lose the thread either so the other piece of uh interesting policy on foreign policy was elizabeth warren getting challenged on this bill that she introduced The bill is one sentence long, and it establishes that it is the policy of the United States to not use nuclear weapons first. Now, it's a single-sentence bill. It's just a statement of what U.S. policy should be, Uh, but it is this very controversial issue within the foreign policy community. It's an issue that's been debated since the Cold War, particularly among, among people who want to limit the prevalence uh, and the possibility of use of nuclear weapons. Warren obviously defended the bill that she introduced. And then Steve Bullock sort of flipped it the other way and said, you know, we can't decide not to use nuclear weapons first. It would be a sign of American weakness, not American strength. It was like a callback to like Bush era foreign policy almost. Um, This is another one of those where there's a big gulf and it's particularly relevant on the presidential level because the president has a lot of power over foreign policy and and particularly on this nuclear proliferation issue. So this is another one that I'm keeping an eye on in terms of do we actually see 
a polarization within the primary, the way that we do on healthcare, the way that we do to some extent on criminal justice, and to some extent on immigration, like we talked about before. The one piece of policy before we wrap up on some final thoughts here is, particularly for the progressives, but even to some extent, the bolder ideas that moderates in 2019 are proposing that moderates in 2007 would have never dreamed of. Um, one thing that constantly stands in the way of these big progressive ideas is a lot of structural factors. Pete Buttigieg uh, raised some structural reforms that he wants to pursue, ending the Electoral College, amending the Constitution to reverse Citizens United, depoliticizing the Supreme Court. Jay Inslee also challenged uh, his Senate colleagues on their refusal to get rid of the filibuster. On these like structural reforms, Pete Buttigieg seems to be the only one prioritizing them really in in a central way to his argument for his candidacy. Do you guys ever... I would argue Warren's doing the same thing, though. You think so? Yeah, I mean, like, he's doing it... He's limited his view of the structural reforms far more to, like, within government, where I would say Warren hits on that less than he does, but I think she is interested in structural reform of the entire country in a more holistic way. Um, you know, obviously in her talks about, you know, reforming Wall Street and big business and, you know, potentially breaking up Facebook and stuff like that. Like she, she's thinking about those same types of things. Whereas Bujedge is like very interesting, like reforming the presidency, reforming the Senate, that kind of thing. I'd agree with that. Is that a blind spot for progressive policy? Not, having a wider discussion about these structural reforms or, or do you think that's something that'll come? Well, later? I think, I think Warren is doing it. I think someone like Bernie Sanders should be doing it more. Um, and you know, uh, I, I think the criticism on Buttigieg kind of goes the other way, which is he's like, I think we should reform the American government. And I'm like, great, but why? <laughs> like, well, you want to deal with it, you know, like make it less corrupt. Okay, cool. I agree with that. But like, what do you want to do after that? Uh, that's that's my you know my big question. Whereas I think Warren and Bernie could really beef up their uh, you know stuff and their goals by explaining how uh, they like what what they're how do they think they're going to get their reforms done? Because I think that is a blind side. A side. Well, this just reminds me of the conversation we were having earlier, though, when we were saying that there is this kind of juxtaposition between candidates within the party itself, where we've got the moderate candidate and the, the progressive candidate, it also seems like we've got the candidate that is basically like, well, the government's working, we just need to change a lot of things in corruption, versus the candidate that feels that we need to throw out the government and basically start over. Now, I realize that's an overstatement, but at the same time, just for the sake of conversation, um, what it's kind of another polarity within the party itself. How do you approach the problems that we're experiencing within our government? And I don't think there's a good answer. And I think that that's why it's coming up. And I'm like you were saying, Luke kind of surprised it's not coming up more, but I also think that we're going to see vastly different approaches. All right, so let's wrap this up with a little bit of horse race and talk about who's going to move on to what is basically the next round of this contest. I think I've tortured everybody with a little too much policy conversation after midnight here. Um, based on your assessment, sort of just judging their performance and how compelling they are as a candidate, Megan, who do you think is likely to end up in this next round of debates in September? So I was trying to narrow it down to 10. I ended up with kind of like between with some toss ups about 12. And I know Luke has a list of people who are actually going on. So we'll find out very shortly if I'm wrong or not. Um, but I think it's going to be Biden, Harris, Booker, uh, Warren, Sanders, de Blasio. I actually think Yang's going to make it through. Um, it's going to be a toss up between O'Rourke and Buttigieg, Castro, and then a toss up between Klobuchar and Gillibrand. So we got quite a few on the bubble here. Luke, the 
you know, the the advancement into the next round of this debate is it's not totally subjective. It's not like the college football playoff where they just pick four uh, the four teams they think are the best. There are some numbers here that they're judging off of. Do we know who has already met the number thresholds in terms of donors and uh, percentage point support in the polls? Do we know who's safe to get to the next round already? Yeah, so just to let people know what the criteria are, and I think that's important because it'll tell you how possible it is for other people to make this list. So the you have to make both of these to get into the next debate. Uh, the previous one, you only had to make one of the criteria, and both of the criteria got bumped up. So the first is the polling criteria. And so you have to uh, get at least 2% in four different polls uh, between June 28th and August 28th. And then on fundraising, by the deadline, which is also August 28th, you have to get a minimum of 100 and 30,000 unique donors, which at least 400 unique donors per state in at least 20 states. That's very specific. Anyway, so the people that have made it, they have already hit both of these check marks. They are in. It is Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Warren, Booker, and Bego O'Rourke. Um, Amy Klobuchar is pretty close like she's almost definitely going to be in because as of uh, July 29th, she had 120,000 donors. So she only needs 10,000 more. She'll probably get that. Um, Castro and Yang have actually hit the donor requirement, but they haven't hit the poll requirement, but they both have three polls. So they're probably in, um, you know, they have a whole month to have one more poll, push them in. So they're probably in. Um, interestingly enough, uh, our, our good friend, Tom, Thomas Fay Steyer has already got two polls where he's at 2%. So if he can convince enough people to, uh, give him donations, he might get in and then pretty much everybody else. Yeah. I wish we could forget about him. Uh, but yeah, besides that, though, nobody's really close. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Megan, uh, Bill de Blasio has like less than 8,000 donors. So you know, I'm okay probably, with that. I don't actually... Yeah, I'm okay with that, too. I don't actually like de Blasio. <laughs> I just think that he has performed very well. Um, so yeah. my list wasn't too bad. I think the only thing I was like really kind of quote-unquote wrong on is that I said it would probably be O'Rourke or Buttigieg, and it sounds like it's going to be both. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and de Blasio. Um, and, obviously, I'm wrong on de Blasio. Yeah, the only other people that are kind of close is like Gabbard has 100,010 donors, and she's had one poll where she's at 2%, so she might be able to pull it off. Okay, so there's about 10 people who are almost definitely in, so I suspect the next debate will probably be 10, maybe 11, and probably no more than 12. God willing. Yes, <laughs> that is plenty for me. All right. Well, I think that we are going to leave that discussion there. And so let me turn it now to my interview with Marcus Cole. And so I talked with Marcus Cole a couple of weeks ago. He's a candidate in Georgia 7. He's in that race with Carolyn Bordeaux, Brenda Lopez, Romero, Nabila Islam. We've talked to them before. We talked about Marcus's views on a whole variety of issues, his views on impeachment, which is now sort of a, a hot topic in the Congress. Um, so without any further delay, I will turn over the show to my interview with Marcus. All right, so we are now joined by Marcus Cole, a Democratic candidate in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Uh, Marcus, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me today, man. We're really early here in the, in the 2020 cycle as we're starting to talk to candidates running for office. Um, so can you start by just giving us, giving our listeners the opportunity to learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, uh, so my name is Marcus, and I am a Christian husband and father and small business owner in Gwinnett County. I have my own law office. And, you know, the thing I really want to let people know is that my wife, Amanda, and I are really rooted in this community. We're raising our two little daughters in the house my, my wife grew up in, and we're just really excited about this opportunity to serve in the Georgia 7th Congressional District. Uh, my background, just so you know, is 
you know, this is kind of in my blood. My my grandfather is or was uh, in the Army. He, he served in Vietnam. My mother retired a lieutenant colonel in the Army. Uh, my dad's a school teacher still, public education here in Georgia. So the idea of serving your community by, by really getting out there and, and helping folks uh, is something that I really took to heart. And that's why I spent time as a legal aid attorney helping victims of domestic violence, seniors, vets, and, and through work doing racial justice work, I got an opportunity to be a prosecutor for a while where I helped victims of crimes and did some criminal justice work around uh, prosecutorial reform. So that all kind of led me to really getting involved in this community here in the Georgia uh, just as a regular party member, knocking doors for write-in candidates uh, last cycle, precinct captain, a member of the Democratic Party of Gwinnett, and really just being there for my neighbors. So if you get elected to Congress to represent the 7th Congressional District, chances are Democrats probably had a pretty good night, including likely taking the White House back and, and possibly even the Senate. So you would go to Washington to govern, presumably, in your view, what should the top priority of the next Congress be? Yeah, that'd be a great night in November, yeah, because, I mean, if, if, if we're having that great a night, that means that we're flipping seats up and down the ballot, both here in Georgia and in D.C. And so I'd go right to work protecting the issues that are important to the people back in the Georgia 7th. That's health care, that's a tax system, that's fair, and, and probably most importantly, uh, making sure that we're able to protect those things by reinstating the Voting Rights Act. And, and really what we saw here in Georgia just last cycle, Kyle, a couple months ago, is that with a rigged voting system, uh, the governor, Kemp, was able to take office and right away go after women's reproductive rights and, and right away decide that he wasn't expanding Medicaid here in Georgia and, and right away uh, make sure that he didn't expand uh, the minimum wage here in Georgia. So all of that is a direct result of the fact that votes literally weren't counted here in Georgia. So let's um, start with some of the priorities you laid out here, and, and, and let's start with health care. Uh, Democrats nationally are currently debating what a health care agenda should be for the next Democratic president. And the debate seems to follow along the lines of whether folks believe that there should be a role for private insurance coverage. So if you're elected to the House, would you like to see that chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance? Or would you prefer reforms to the existing system where most people still get their insurance through either their employer or the private market or Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah, so I, I, when, when, I, when I think about that and I hear people talking about it, it does, let's imagine a nightmare scenario, right, where a guy gets into office, let's call him Ronald Trump, per se, and the only health care in town, the only health care in town is a government program that Mr. Trump and his vice president decide they no longer want to see women have access to health care services like birth control or other reproductive rights systems, or, or, or they want to get rid of certain programs and policies. Uh, that's the nightmare scenario to me. And really what I want to see is an option there for people that want to have access to affordable health care, accessible health care, health care that won't break the bank. And I think the government has a role to provide that policy, to provide that option to people so that they can get in there. And I think that, you know, when you look at Bernie Sanders' plan and how they talk about transitioning people over several years, I think that's the direction we need to be moving in, one where there's an option for people to get covered, whether it's these no premiums, these, these, these no uh, out-of-pocket costs, and we have to find a way to transition into that program that gives people options. Um, and sticking with healthcare for a minute here, you you started to go in this direction, but you know in this year's legislative session, Georgia adopted one of the nation's strictest abortion bans, prohibiting the procedure after six weeks and only allowing for limited exceptions. What's your view of that legislation? Uh, I think a picture is worth a thousand words, Kyle. And I think the picture that I think of in my mind is uh, Senator Renee Unterman standing there in a room full of what maybe thirty men. Uh, deciding the fate of women all over the state of Georgia. It's people like my wife, people like my daughters that are growing up, uh, to score political points so that she can elevate herself and run for the next office. I, I think what, what happened here under the Gold Dome in Georgia was 
a travesty and and, and unjust, to be honest with you. Uh, But I will say this. It it seems like uh, Ms. Unterman was finally able to shrink the government small enough to fit into the medical room with a doctor and a woman when they make these critical health care decisions. I I think that this is terrible, and I look forward to helping candidates up and down the ballot here in Georgia win seats so that we can take back the gold dome and get rid of this atrocious law next next, uh, next cycle. Yeah, so you've got the Georgia context here, and and, and that law is a, a matter that's likely to be handled in the courts. But Congress does play a role generally in reproductive health care policy. And uh, one is this policy known as the Hyde Amendment. It's a policy that blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion services within the med- within the Medicaid program. Would you like to see the Hyde Amendment repealed? Yes, and here's why. This isn't just a matter of reproductive rights. This is reproductive justice. What, what the Hyde Amendment does is create a two-tier system where there's first-class citizens with health care insurance and second-class citizens with health care insurance. And what the Hyde Amendment specifically does, the people that are relying on these services to say that you are not getting this health care service, you can't get this because you can't afford to go out and get your own private insurance. And I don't believe in an America that has a, a two-tier system like that. I don't think it's right, and I don't think it's just. Um, let's move on to climate change here. So a report last year from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that the world may have as little as 12 years to reach emissions limits targets to stave off the worst effects of climate change. Recently, congressional Democrats signed on to a non-binding resolution called the Green New Deal. So how do you view the Green New Deal? What does that term mean to you? And do you support it or something like it? Yeah, and I, I think this is critical, right? So my, my two daughters were born in 2015 and 2018. God willing, if they make it to 85 years old or, or older, they will see the next century. Like, I, I just want to put that into perspective. It's, it's, people living now are going to deal with the ramifications of the cowardice of people in D.C. And I, I think the Green New Deal is exactly the level of engagement that we need. It, it has to be full-on economy-wide, society-wide change to turn the ship around. And what we see, unfortunately, is that the current administration, as soon as they got in, rolled back the change that we, we were able to start doing by pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. And, and thankfully, we have mayors across the, the country and even certain governors in certain states trying to come together regionally uh, in their cities and their towns to, to fight for the future. And what I'll say specifically about Georgia is we have a real opportunity here in Georgia to invest heavily now in renewables and green jobs and in getting grants and investments here so that Georgia can power itself with sunshine and wind. But we can't do that with, with a governor campaign. We can't do that with an administration that denies the science. Moving on here to immigration. So in recent months, an unprecedented number of parents with children and unaccompanied minors have reached the southern border, overwhelming available resources and and creating a detention crisis down on the border. Several Democrats currently running for president have called for the repeal of the federal law that has enabled the family separation policy. In your view, what should Congress do about conditions at the border? And would you support legislation in the House decriminalizing unlawful border crossings? Yeah, so I think the first thing to point out is this, this, this immigration crisis, as we want to call it. We, we should call it spade a spade, right? And this is a political tactic, political ploy that the administration is doing. And the proof is in the pudding, really, Kyle, because you saw last year before the midterms, every couple months the administration would get all riled up about some caravan or something like that. We, we, we need to be honest about what's happening at our southern border. The administration is denying people the re- internationally recognized opportunity to apply for asylum at the border. So what these people are doing that are fleeing desperate situations is doing their best to cross over wherever they can so that they can get into contact with border officials and ask for asylum. So this, this family separation process that's happened, really what the, what the administration is doing is taking advantage of people's desperation and, and need to care for their families and politicizing it for, for gain. And, and that's terrible. And so when I get to D.C., one of the first things I want to make sure we do is have a comprehensive immigration plan that deals with not just the people that are already here, but gets our asylum system 
and our, our, our formal legal channels of entering the country back in order. Because what we've seen the administration do is try to starve the beast. There aren't enough jobs or judges. There aren't enough people doing the work of getting through asylum claims so that we see this backlog. And I think that let's address the issues that we can first, where the administration is literally falling down on the job. And then once we do that, we can take a look at what other changes need to happen. So this whole issue um, kind of brought up this situation for some more progressive members of the House Democratic Caucus, where they wanted to see Democrats push back more strongly against a funding compromise uh, that Congress considered a few weeks ago. They wanted to push back more strongly in order to institute standards of care for migrant families being detained on the border. Um, But they ultimately, the people who wanted that pushback did not win out. The House adopted uh, an agreement that that was come to in the Senate between Senate Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. So I just want to ask you generally how you think about instances where you might have a strong position, uh, but your colleagues within your party want to go in a different direction. How do you sort of navigate these um, debates and these disagreements within the party how would you do that if, if you were to become the Democratic representative for Georgia 7? Yeah, I think when I get to D.C., the, the first principle has always got to be uh, do justice, right, and, and, and help folks. And, and I think that's got to be our North Star as, as Democrats and in the Democratic Party. Uh, how are we actually helping the people? And, and the people does include my constituents back in the Georgia 7th Congressional District, but it includes all of my neighbors. And, and I think it's specifically with the instance you're referencing there, uh, you know, the Democratic Party, we're a diverse party. We, we, we range in, in race and age and sexual orientation, and we really do have a big tent, and we're not always going to agree. And I think that's okay. And in a house where different people have different votes, it's okay to vote differently. I, I think what's not okay is when we start taking shots at ourselves. You know, friendly fire is what's really bringing us down because what we saw happen was that the administration was all too happy to take advantage of that, uh, that, that personal animosity there and, and blow it up into a national news story. So another problem that has vexed Congress and policymakers in recent years is the issues of gun violence, particularly gun violence in schools. Um, According to the Gun Violence Archive, 237 people have been killed in 247 mass shootings through July 11th of this year. We've been round and round in this conversation with really almost no progress that has become law, although the House did pass an expanded background check bill this year. That bill's not expected to go anywhere in the Senate within this current Congress. So on this issue of gun violence generally, how do we get to a solution that can actually be passed and passed in both houses of Congress and signed into law by the president? Yeah, we have to get past the moral cowardice of, of Washington, D.C., to be completely honest with you. I mean, I'm 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 young enough to remember still when I was in school, you know, the drills we did were tornado drills where you go in the hallway and put your knees between, put your head between your knees or, you know, you do this. If you catch on fire, you stop, drop and roll. Now, at 32, I've never had to use either one of those. But children now in school literally do armed shooter drills and have to know because it happens all too frequently. So, I mean, and let's just take the kids down in Florida, for instance. They're literally telling us, and they're crying out to us, that they need help. They don't feel safe. And the fact that we haven't been able to solve this problem, uh, the first mass shooting I can recall was Columbine back when I was in school. And I remember watching those images live and how that made me feel. And and when I was older, uh, the Newtown massacre, you know, four- and five-year-olds in in school, I, I think the minimum we can do is agree that universal background checks are necessary, right? To close loopholes that allow these gun transfers and these gun sales. Uh, This idea that somehow we just should throw up our hands in the air and have thoughts and prayers when these things happen, it's cowardice. And and I'll tell you, my background as a prosecutor, all too often, I would sit down and talk to victims in these types of shootings. I would talk to police officers and detectives, and they tell me all the time, uh, we got to get these guns off the street. It's the guns on the street that are that are really killing our community. 
Moving on here, another issue that Congress has tackled recently is an increase in the federal minimum wage. Last week, the House passed the Raise the Wage Act. It's a proposal that would increase the federal minimum the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. That's another one that's unlikely to move in the current Senate, so the House would have to consider it again next Congress. Do you support the Raise the Wage Act or something similar that increases the federal minimum wage? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the federal minimum wage needs to be raised, and in fact, we should be talking about the dignity of work. And, and this is what I'll say. Uh, to, to people that are saying, oh, well, if we raise the wage, you know, the wage, people won't hire. Uh, in Gwinnett County, so where I live in Gwinnett County, Amazon just brought a, a new facility where they're bringing about a thousand jobs, and, and Amazon committed to paying fifteen dollars an hour for minimum wage. So, you know, the idea that somehow these big companies can't absorb Walmart, Target, Amazon paying a living wage to people is ridiculous to me. But, but what I will say, as a small business owner and, and living in the Georgia Seventh, where you know I go to the daycare pickup line and talk to the other parents. There are a lot of small business owners in the in the Georgia 7th Congressional District, a lot of people that own their own businesses, that own restaurants, that, that work at these restaurants. And so what we have to do is be strategic and we have to be smart. Uh, if we're going to ask these small business owners to absorb the cost uh, of doubling the, their, their wages overnight, I, I don't think that's realistic, and I think we're going to get pushback from, from these communities. I think what we have to do is be smart. And, and we saw in Seattle about four years ago they did this where – they did a phased roll-in of, of the $15 an hour minimum wage, and they had some carve-outs for smaller companies where they could do different things. But I think the idea that we can't raise the minimum wage so that a family working full-time can afford housing, can afford food, uh, I think that's a false choice, and I, I reject that premise. I think we can raise the wage, and I think we can do it in such a way that we protect our small businesses and keep them working while also making sure that these big companies aren't living off the dole by uh, having their employees make little and then get these public benefits. So last week, President Trump told four members of Congress, all four were women of color, to go back to the countries they'd come from, playing into a common racist trope and ignoring the fact that all four women are U.S. citizens. Uh, The current Representative for the Georgia 7th Congressional District, uh, Congressman Rob Woodall, he opposed a resolution in the House condemning the president's statements. What was your reaction to the president's tweets and to uh, the view within Georgia's delegation, um, the view of those tweets and, and how little pushback Republican members had to the president? Yeah, so uh, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, uh, it's a duck, right? So Trump, since the day he came down the escalator talking about Mexican rapists and criminals, has been uh, who he is. And so I, that doesn't surprise me, right? Whether it's talking about African countries or a Muslim ban, he has shown us who he is and who he is is racist. That's just number one. But the moral cowardice of, of, of Mr. Woodall and, and his colleagues uh, and, and this is this is what it does, right? It allows an opportunity structure for these people all around the country to feel like they can say and do all types of racist things. And right here in the Georgia Seventh, one of my good friends, one of my uh, former or my fellow party members, uh, it was just in the news, was basically assaulted in a parking lot. Uh, a man just came up and, 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 and defaced her car with Trump stickers, Trump support, and then he followed her for miles down the road yelling and shouting at her so much so that she didn't even feel safe to go home. And, and so this, this idea that, well, they're just tweets or, you know, he is who he is. No, no, no. He's the leader of the free world and the leader of our country, and we deserve more. And, and we, we deserve to have a representative in D.C. that can say when, when something is wrong, it's wrong. And, and I'm just so tired of what all, sitting on the back of the bench, keeping quiet, letting his legs kick there while he just waits for his time to be done. And uh, one one more point here. Let's let's close on the question of impeachment. Currently, 86 House Democrats and one Michigan Independent, Justin Amash, 87 of them support opening an impeachment inquiry into the president. Now, this is a question that may never be before you in the House, but let's say you're a member of the House today. How do you approach the question of impeachment of President Trump? Yeah, Kyle, this is a great question, because if you had been asleep for the past three years and you woke up and I told you that a sitting president was an unindicted co-conspirator in a federal crime, 
and one of his co-conspirators was currently doing three years in prison for that crime, you'd wonder, rightfully so, why this wasn't on the news all the time with the impeachment proceedings, right? So let, let's just let's let's. I I can't wait to hear what uh, Mueller has to say later this week when he when he comes and has his hearing. But even without hearing that, just having read his report and the ten different items that they lay out as possible obstruction, even before you get to that, the president is a unindicted co-conspirator in a federal crime. It is beyond question that an impeachment inquiry should be open at this point. It, it, it's not, I don't think, for Congress, uh, House representatives to decide for themselves, oh, well, the Senate's going to do this or that. You're not in the Senate right now. You're in the House, and you have one obligation. In fact, it's the only body in the entire country that has the authority and the right to bring an impeachment inquiry. And here we are in July of 2019 with an unindicted co-conspirator sitting in the White House I, I, I think it's a travesty, and I think right now they should open up that inquiry and then put it to a vote and let the people see who stands for justice and who doesn't. So we've covered a lot of uh, politics and policy ground here today, uh, but before we go, is are there any other issues that you'd like to touch on or anything else you'd like listeners to know about your candidacy? Yeah, I, I, I really want the listeners to know how uh, humbled I am and how blessed I am to be running for this seat in this community that I love and my wife and I love and we're rooted in. And, and, I, and I just want to put this out there. Uh, there are some great people running for this seat in the Democratic Party. Uh, no matter who wins this Democratic seat here, it, it, it's going to be historic, right? I, I would be the first African-American ever, person of color ever, to win this seat during the Georgia 7. Uh, and, and that's something, that's, a, that's an honor and a privilege that is very humbling to hear. And, and my, my other co-people uh, running in this race are all, you know, doing it for, I think, the right reason. And then we see people on the other side of the aisle just literally trying to buy a seat, uh, you know, whether it's $50,000, $200,000, half a million dollars moved from an account. Uh, this idea that you can just buy this seat, that, that you just earned it in that way, um, I, I'm proud to be running as a Democrat where we want to see who the best person with the best ideas that can best connect to the Georgia 7th, uh, be that candidate instead of the person with the biggest checkbook. And so I'm glad to be on this side of the aisle. I'm glad to be running on ideas and people over profits and, and, and people over politics. And so I look forward to seeing uh, more of you out there in the Georgia 7th, seeing you around Metro Atlanta, talking about my campaign. And you can find out more information at uh, coal for Georgia spelled out dot com. That's C O L E F O R Georgia dot com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's me. It's not an intern. I'm there. I'm easily connected. And I'd love to answer your questions at coal for GA on Twitter, at coal for GA on Instagram, and at coal for GA on Facebook. All right. Well, Marcus Cole is a Democratic candidate for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Marcus, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Thanks. All right. So thank you to Marcus Cole for joining the show this week. And Megan and Luke, thank you for doing some late night peach pod and some debate recap. Thank you and good night. Glad it's over. (laughs) Yes. Glad it's over. Yep. We're going to. Good night and good luck. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to go to sleep. So we are going to leave it there. We will talk to you all next week. Yep. Bye. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.